Hello, and welcome to Elder Health Connection, a podcast where I gather innovators in elder health care to discuss their unique perspectives on caregiving and care receiving. My name is Caroline Morris, and I use my combined experience in biochemistry, physical therapy, health coaching, and growing up next door to my grandparents to dig deep into the complexities of aging and then draw out practical solutions that can fit into your life. I record this show from my home in Alexandria, Virginia, sometimes with the input from my dogs, Vinny and Barry. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Abby. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Caroline. Nice to see you. You too. So can we get started with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. I am Abby Simon. I've been a speech language pathologist for about 25 years, and my career has allowed me to work in lots of different settings from hospitals to rehab centers to outpatient clinics to aphasia programs and private practice. And recently, I guess about a year or two ago, I became an integrative health coach so that I could broaden the kind of work I do and reach the care partners or other people impacted by neurological illness that most of my patients these days deal with. So my specialty as a speech pathologist is to work with adults who have acquired communication disorders. And over the years, I've learned that the communication disorder doesn't just affect the person who has it and that the people in his or her life need some support and guidance too, which is how I hope and have seen my health coaching practice reach more people. Great. And do you mind going into a little bit more detail as to what a speech pathologist is, what you do to help people with neurological conditions? Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when people think of a speech pathologist, they think of a school speech therapist or someone that works with children who perhaps are speaking delayed or might not pronounce certain letters properly. And What we realize, though, when we talk more about the field of speech language pathology is that speech pathologists can work with, yes, brand new humans who might not have the ability to swallow or then speak at a normal developmental stage all throughout their childhood. And then when people become older, communication impairments could develop as a result of age, maybe, and disease that occurs. It can be acquired with a trauma to the brain. It could be acquired by a neurological illness such as Parkinson's or ALS or multiple sclerosis. So speech pathologists have the fortune, the good fortune of helping people adapt and improve their communication skills based on their needs and diagnosis. And when we think about communication, which speech pathologists address, we think about different forms of communication. Again, going back to the speech therapist who works in a school, they're predominantly associated with working on the actual motion or movement of talking, right? Articulation, working with someone's intelligibility. But 
communication or language is in written form, spoken form. It involves the comprehension of other people's speech and it involves reading. So speech pathologists can address and improve someone's language to improve their overall communication based on their brain's function and changes. Yeah, it sounds pretty complex when you get into it and makes sense why you would need a specialist to really figure out what the communication need is. Right. And that's why it's important when someone is seeking or interested in working with a speech therapist that they know the specific qualifications or expertise of someone like me and other therapists who might not do the same type of work. So at this point in my career, my specialty, like I mentioned, is working with adults who have acquired neurological illness. But there are plenty of speech therapists who work with the school-age population and other individuals with different types of communication disorders. Mm -hmm. And even the speech pathologists that I've worked with across my career, some focus more on swallowing, some focus more on quality of voice and some focus more on cognition. So I think that's a great tip to really know the qualifications, the interests, the experience of the person you're seeking out to make sure you get the right care in a timely manner. Right. And since, you know, the audience that we're speaking to primarily are adults and people that are in the beautiful process of aging, Lots of communication changes happen organically, biologically, when the brain ages and changes, even if there hasn't been a direct impact, stroke, or other reason for cognition, thinking, communication changes to occur. And so lots of people, as we get older, complain of memory and confusion problems. And so speech pathologists who are trained in that area of cognitive linguistic abilities can be very instrumental in guiding the aging person and their family and friends to optimize and improve someone's ability to communicate as independently as they can. Yeah, and it's something that I've seen and heard from others that it's just the most frustrating and scary scenario when the person you're caring for can't communicate back to you what they want or need or what they're feeling. Yeah. Well, sometimes we say that the people that I work with, most of the people I work with have something called aphasia, which is an acquired language disorder that occurs from most often a stroke in the language hemisphere of the brain which is typically the left side or a brain tumor or brain injury or other disease processes that affect the language centers. And we say that when you have aphasia, it sort of feels like two things. One, you could pretend you're in a foreign country where someone is speaking a language and it doesn't make sense to you. So what we hear is hard to understand. And then it's that feeling of the typical tip of my tongue. I know what the word is. I just can't say it. So people with aphasia can't retrieve the vocabulary words when they want to, or they say vocabulary words when they don't mean to say those things. And the most important piece about aphasia that I always stress is even though a person may not be 
communicating effectively. They may sound ridiculous to the novel listener. Aphasia does not impact or change a person's intelligence or really their personality. So imagine having all the knowledge stored in your head and being unable to share it as easily as you were prior to getting a communication disorder. That's where the speech pathologists come in and help their clients discover new ways to still be communicatively independent. Yeah, it's so important and a bit maybe of a funny story. So from the PT side, I was evaluating someone after a stroke and he had the type of aphasia where he could speak very fluently, but it was the wrong words. So Mm -hmm. um, he was also a retired physician, very high level. And so during the interview, I was wondering if he was speaking words I didn't know, like medical terms I wasn't aware of, or just using the wrong word, but we ended up working it out and he didn't have very much PT needs, but we were able, because I knew from my training and work with speech pathologists that his cognition was likely intact that I could still speak to him at a high level and educate him on his condition and not try to dumb things down for him. And then later after he had worked extensively with our speech pathologist and improved quite a bit, he caught me in the hallway and just thanked me for not treating him like a child or dumbing things down and seeing him as a whole person. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, that's a very important point. Yeah. All right. So now can you explain a little bit of why you pursued this additional certification of being an integrative health coach and what that's allowing you to do for people Mm -hmm. as well? Yeah. I just, before I do that, I want to go back to one more piece about the aphasia Yeah. and your example of someone who's speaking fluently and the people who don't have the ease at connecting words, they have a different form of aphasia, and people who might have intact language, but they have a different type of cognitive impairment from a brain injury that might affect their reasoning, their recall, or their their verbal processing and planning. What we have to stress before I talk about the health coaching piece is the brain's unbelievable ability to change even at the adult ages. And this is a term perhaps you've used in other talks called neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity allows the mature developed brain to learn, adapt and create new pathways. So when there is brain damage from the reasons I mentioned earlier, we as skilled clinicians know how to target the remaining active good parts of the brain to teach them new things and to learn how the affected part of the brain can compensate. So the reason why we see such improvement with people who have aphasia most of the time is because the brain's adaptability and neuroplasticity. And you probably see that as a physical therapist, the brain can regain its ability to learn new motor pathways and the brain can regain ways to learn new motor and speech pathways that allow communication to improve. So that's what I always stress to adults when they think, oh, I'm so old and what could happen now? There's nothing I can do about it. Nope, adult brains with or without damage can be healthier can be stimulated, 
and can learn to do something it never did before. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. It is such an important piece. And I always marvel at the body's capacity to heal and grow and improve itself if we just provide it the right conditions and let it do its thing. Yeah. And so part of that, letting the body do its thing and acknowledging the body's innate ways of doing things led me to this integrative health coach schooling so that I could offer my clients and their care partners or their communication partners additional ways to improve their health and wellness so that people as they're getting older, as they receive a sudden diagnosis that changes their life in an instant, right? Stroke, brain injuries, most of these symptoms that I've described happen overnight or in a moment's notice and nobody is prepared. And with those language changes comes huge lifestyle changes, not only for the person, but for the other people too. And so this health coaching has allowed me to really be able to address the self-care of care partners. And I'm just going to emphasize that people in this field typically say caregiver or aid or assistant. Some people say care partner. I've really stuck with care partner because I came up with this line that says care partner is only part of who you are. Mm-hmm. And so caregiving to me is is more of a selfless giving, let me help, help, help and provide. But I'm emphasizing that care partner is a partnership and that they can not only give, but they have to recognize that they have to be given to as well. So by using the word care partner, I'm hoping people will be able to feel more accountable to themselves and recognize that doing for others is part of who they are, but we have to address their own needs. And because I know how much communication affects the individual who has the diagnosis and the people in his or her life, I've been always inclined to include those other relationships in my therapy. And now as a coach, I am able to do one-on-one work with the care partners directly with or without their loved one so that they could plan for and creatively discover ways to address their own needs because care partners have a hard time asking others for help. And what we see is that care partners, what? They're all burned out. They all have a woe is me sort of guilty feeling. They deal with an enormous amount of pressure and stress and worry. I'm not making that a general statement, but that's a lot of the feedback that I get from clients. And when someone is diagnosed with a medical issue, immediately people attend, they come, they bring the casseroles, they bring flowers. What can I do? How can I help? I'll make a meal train. So the care partner, right? That new role that you're taking on, you have that instant comfort and, and help and support. And then after weeks and a couple months, those people's lives continue. But the role of the care partner is consistent, consistent. And so I worry that the care partner after weeks and months of it being novel doesn't recognize that help is still needed for them and their health, their wellness goes to the wayside and they feel alone. So I've created this program called All About Balance, which allows care partners to realize that there's a way to balance their role. Yeah, I think you hit on a lot of important 
things there. I'll just highlight a few. Um, one is the care partner term. You were the first person I came across who used it consistently. And I think it is a nice distinction. And it may be that in your work and in my similar work that we are really helping people to transition from a caregiver identity to a care partner identity, recognizing that just giving and giving and giving isn't going to be the solution or the Mm-hmm. The best way to take care of the person we love or ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like how you mentioned the kind of the trajectory of the role of starting with a lot of newness, but also a lot of support at the same time. And then it evolves to having less support, but maybe not as new. And one thing I hear too from people is they just don't know how long this role is going to last. So they keep delaying their own self-care and keep focusing on the other person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of people accept that role and whether it is temporary, right? Whether they think, well, this, not that they should think it's short term because that's a very poor prognosis, but some people, whether it's a spiritual calling, a religious calling, they're just emotional connection to their loved one. That really is the priority in their life. And they don't complain, or at least they don't outwardly complain. But when certain conversations come up or they hear from peers or others who also take care of somebody else, it might dawn on them that they've been neglecting their own needs and they put them aside. I mean, it's always like, I don't care if I don't eat dinner tonight because I just have to make sure he gets fed. I have to make sure that everything is done. And that's not the healthiest way for, as you mentioned, the relationship, the person you're caring for, as well as the care partner. And so it's, it's a give and take. It's a relationship that both people need to be a little bit more honest with, no matter how hard it might tug. Um, mm-hmm at one of their hearts to cause guilt and concern. Yeah. What do you think would be like a good screen or red flags to look out for if that dynamic is going too much in the direction of only giving and neglecting of the care partner? How can people start to realize they might be in this dynamic? Mm -hmm. Well, a screen to me are my eyes and my ears when I see and listen to a person. They may not think they're complaining or revealing how they're really feeling, but whether it's an eye movement or a facial grimace, you could sort, I could perceive that they may be experiencing some type of feeling that they may not want to admit, at least to their loved one. So in terms of a script, I could offer someone a questionnaire, which I do have some questions about roles of care partnering and how they perceive it to be for themselves at that moment compared to maybe what it was when it originally began. But I think some people don't, like I said earlier, some people don't realize that they've been neglecting themselves because they are happily taking on the role of caring. But when we subtly ask about what in their life might be missing or there's a void in, Mm -hmm. I think without making it something that's a loss as opposed to saying, okay, there's this missing component. 
how can we bring it back to your life? So I think asking questions that don't have a negative connotation. So someone would feel like, oh, thanks. You're telling me that I, I can't go to my exercise class anymore because there's nobody to stay at home with Charlie, or Sally. No, I, would, I, I don't think those are the types of screening questions. But when we think about life in its pre-care partner stage, right? What was it like then? What about life then is missing and that you're craving? And how can we perhaps find a different way for you to get those same levels of satisfaction. It may not be doing it exactly the way you did, but there's ways we can alter the, the needs that you have of being met. I like that as a... And I, and I think too, sorry to interrupt, but <laughs> people often think of health and wellness as nutrition, or I've got to move my body and walk 10,000 steps. But I know from my schooling and just living life and working with people and having relationships of my own, that it's not just about the food that we eat and the liquids that we drink that make us healthy and well. And without these other, what I call like secondary or primary forms of nutrition, our lives could be lacking, whether it's creativity, whether it's education, whether it's travel, whether it's spirituality those things can contribute to health and wellness. And you don't have to take a big trip or leave your house to do some of those things. So I love coaching people and watching them discover, oh, you mean if I really do go to the library and do one of those audiobooks and just sit in my room by myself, it could feel like I'm alone and away from the stress. I didn't even think I could do that. Or, wow, so I should say yes to my neighbor if she offers or he offers to drop off an extra meatloaf that they're already making. Because we don't like to think as care partners that we're asking of others. We want to be proud and, and noble, but sometimes people like to help. Yeah. And seeing that, I think, confirms that it could be done a little bit more regularly. It's learning how to say yes. Oftentimes we stress, you got to know when to say no and, and, and not take on too much. I like to talk about knowing when to say yes. So the care partners have an easier time getting help and accepting offers that are made to them, which is not an instinctive response most people have. Yeah, that's such an important point that a lot of us are conditioned to say no. I think that spans across multiple cultures in terms of being offered help or assistance. And especially I find in women, we tend to say no to offers of help, especially in areas that we think we should be handling on our own and learning to say yes. It's a gift for you, but it's also a gift for the person offering because often people on the outside who want to help feel helpless when their offers aren't received. And I think that the person being cared for often deemed or labeled the loved one, but I look at, again, the relationship, right? So someone has a formal diagnosis, someone or some people take on the role of care partnering. And despite the loved one's communicative ability, right? Whether they have dementia, aphasia, or other type of communication problem, they need to recognize that it's not just about their needs. And in whatever way a speech pathologist, other rehab professionals can use to explain and highlight to that person that there has to be care on multiple levels, 
then hopefully it's more of a symbiotic relationship and that it's not because guilt could come from two people, right? Mm -hmm. The care partner could feel guilty that they leave their loved one or they don't want to be around all the time. And then the loved one, the, the person, the client may feel guilty because their care partner is always around. So how can we address both types of guilt and meet both people's needs that needs someone from the outside to sort of be objective and and able to balance those levels and feelings out because it contributes to frustration and anger and acceptance and so many different levels of, of emotional t- twists and turns mm-hmm. that two-sided guilt i think mm-hmm. is something that's not talked about enough mm-hmm. um in my when I'm in a long-term PT course, I usually only hear about it maybe two months in. It's not something that's brought up right away of, you know, some guilt and resentment from the patient or client that they feel like they have to be babysat or that their spouse or child, whoever is partnering with them has lost their independence in their own life. And then, you know, sometimes the partner starts getting resentful about having to go to so many appointments and put their own life on hold. And then they feel guilty about being resentful for it. Right. So it's, it's a cycle. Just, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a, a fraught topic, but I think, like you said, having someone from the outside to bring those issues to the forefront so they can be discussed and resolved mm-hmm. and a plan yeah, put and, in place. And not- and not all at once, right? So if we do, if we approach it sort of as a system and not overwhelm the, the coupleship, the partner, the couple, we, we could just make subtle changes, planning in advance. Like you using the example of not wanting to go to every appointment. There are ways to get around that. Now, a lot of people say, but it's too expensive. I can't afford it. I can't ask other people to help me because then they'll be sacrificing something. So individually, each relationship that I work with reveals what will work for them, whether it does have to do with finances, whether it has to do with geographical convenience or inconvenience, you know, the power of virtual, you know, telepractice now and connecting with others that may not live nearby. That's a huge way to allow the care partner some time away by bringing in other people to talk Mm -hmm. to the client maybe through a phone call, FaceTime or Zoom. So it's, it's becoming a little bit more creative too on how to ask for help and bring in other people. Yeah, I think that, like you said, telemedicine has opened up huge opportunities of bringing other people in. And also where I live in the DC area, traffic and just getting places mm-hmm. is exhausting and to not have to commute to the appointments and deal with finding parking and navigating the building has been a relief for a lot of people as well. And yeah, and you mentioned the word relief. I also focused a lot on, and this is speech pathology, Abby talking and health coach, Abby talking. I believe so strongly in the power of the mind, not in a woo woo way, but mindset, right? We talk about a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. There's lots of literature about that, but even just shifting the way you say something, just even if you're the only one that hears it, right? As opposed to, why me? Why isn't it my sibling that's doing this? As opposed to, I'm I'm the lucky one. 
I get this time. I would feel sad if I didn't have it. And whether or not you believe it at the moment, just saying things a little bit more affirmatively and twisting the vocabulary, but still saying the same message can really help people accept their role and reduce that feeling of overwhelm just by tweaking little words. And that's me combining my speech pathology linguistic skills with my empathic health coaching training to figure out ways to help my clients do that. And I think those little shifts make big differences. They do. And they don't take a lot of time or effort or maybe some effort to recognize Mm -hmm. it, but it's not a big overhaul of your life just to switch a few phrases. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other examples of common tweaks that you recommend for people? Mm -hmm. Just off the top of my head. So mindset shifting and just rephrasing, reframing your words. The other thing is to have a very obvious visual planned schedule could be day by day so that each night when people are reclining, going to sleep, someone is discussing. And again, what I'm factoring in here, communication impairment, if there is a communication impairment, the exchange of this information has to be done with different types of support so that the care partner and we'll say the loved one both know what's happening tomorrow. And there needs to be a a prominent way, whether it's an appointment, whether it's somebody else coming into the house, whether it's, I don't know, a show that they're going to watch or somewhere where they're going to go. I think nightly reviews of what's to come tomorrow is very helpful. Someone might not remember it and someone might not be able to read it or understand it, but it reduces the burden of the care partner when somebody might say, well, what are we doing? When are we going? Or question, as opposed to now the care partner can say, wait, hold on. Let me go, let's go get that piece of paper or the whiteboard or our computer that has the information or pictures that we discussed yesterday. So again, just sort of reducing the pressure and the redundancy that care partnerships require when the loved one either doesn't remember easily. And we need to use visual reminders and aids, external supports that everybody in the house has easy access to. And like you said earlier, in a very adult appropriate way, no little pictographs of childlike (laughs) toys and foods. Yeah, I love that. I think even for me, interacting with people with short-term memory impairments, repeating the same thing over and over and over is one of the most draining aspects of it and guarding my tone. So I'm not getting increasingly frustrated with the same question being asked, but your suggestion of using other means of communication and references could make a big difference. And the person doesn't have to remember the details. The person just needs to quote unquote, remember that there's a place to look for the details, Mm -hmm. right? So we shouldn't have to constantly, we're going to Dr. Jones, we're going to Dr. Jones, we're going to Dr. Jones. And if the person doesn't remember, I'm not going to say we're going to Dr. Jones, but I'm going to just sort of refer to or reference or get what we are using that says Dr. Jones has a picture of Dr. Jones on it, something so that that person knows they could access the information without the care partner having to do it all. So how can the care partner include other people, specifically the one they're caring for in the processes that they are taking on and ownership of? They may be doing more. And of course, don't get me wrong, there are people who are in situations that need close to 100% 
you know, they're 100% dependent on others. So I'm not minimizing the, the severe need that some people have of their care partners, but those care partners still need relief too. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really figuring out how much can the, the loved one do themselves and how much does the care partner have to do? And then who else could come into this dynamic and relationship and help both parties? Yeah, and if there's a system in place, I imagine that's much easier to delegate to someone else mm -hmm. than just trying to do it all on your own on the fly. And then that new person doesn't know what you've been doing and the the loved one rejects the help of the right. new person and things like right. that. Right, and, and in some illnesses that progress, right? So dementia type syndromes or certain other progressive illnesses, we also have to plan for what's to come and coach and therapeutize in the moment, right, of the current needs. But if we know we're working with someone who has a deteriorating illness, we also have to coach and educate the family for preparing on how to adapt whatever systems and routines are in place when further cognition or communication changes take place. So there's a lot of preparatory coaching that has to happen also so that the feeling of overwhelm doesn't just sneak up on them when something changes more, you know, abruptly. Yeah, that's another good thing to highlight because unfortunately a lot of conditions do progress. And when we talk about older adults in general, there can be quite a, a lot of gain that happens in a therapy course or other wellness courses, but we know long-term, it's not all going to be gain. There will be decline. Mm -hmm. Can you think of an example of a care partnership that you worked with in the coaching framework or in the hybrid of speech pathologist coach framework that just worked really well? You had a lot of success with that. Mm -hmm. When I work with someone as a speech therapist, most of the time sessions include their significant other, their child, their spouse, their partner, someone else is typically in the room. And I like when that happens because the observer, who most of the time has to learn to just observe, except when we bring them in gets to see how I interact and use my communication supports and strategies and techniques in a way that can effectively promote the person with communication impairment success. And when I think about how my speech therapy and my coaching go together is when, let's use a, a husband and wife as an example. And if the husband is the one, or I'm thinking of a gentleman who has aphasia, pretty profound aphasia. And he uses, he now uses a communication system to supplement the communication he can provide by speaking and writing and the use of his photos. So in the beginning, his wife would absolutely try to answer all of the questions he was asked or tell him, you know, show her this and do this and touch this and write this. Like she was really telling him what to do. And I wasn't really directly coaching her back in those days, but just by her observing my dynamic with him, she subtly caught on. And through the course of our therapy, 
I was able to counsel and provide her with more skilled education about how she and her family could continue doing what we were doing in therapy in real life, which is really what the most important part about this is. Like, how do we do what is done in the therapy room or on the Zoom room in real life situations? And so it was subtle coaching at the time because it was really what we call communication partner training. How am I training the communication partner? So I know I use care partner most of the time, but when I'm working with clients who have a real communication impairment, they have communication partners too. And then when that communication partner feels that they have needs of their own that are not being met or emotions that they're not sure how to share with the client because the person may not understand what they're saying or they just may need to find new language and new ways to deliver feelings. That's when I'm able to really combine my coaching, my support, my guiding of the care partner, along with providing the support for the communication impaired person. And as I'm talking about this with you right now, I'm sort of re like recognizing there really aren't many people I work with as a couple. So because I've been a speech pathologist for so long, that's my primary clientele. My focus has been to maximize my client's communication potential. Now, as a health and wellness coach who's focusing on the care partner, I think, and I have, I'm, as, I'm, as I said, I'm just sort of processing this now, I'm not sure it behooves me or them to do it as a group. I think it's best for me to see the care partners separately. And they may not have to have a loved one who I have ever met. Actually, it might be better that way. Um, so I think naturally I have seen my professionalism yield success to the client and the people in his or her life in an indirect way because they witness mm -hmm. the success of language recovery. But I think as, as far as a coach, to people who have very intact communication and cognitive skills, I think I could be a little bit more direct and allow them the space away from their loved one to really focus on themselves. And I wouldn't have a problem bringing in you know, a client who, who is impaired, but I, I think the coaching should really allow the care partner some individual attention and processing space. And that's all I want to give them is really a, a space for them to process and discover how they can achieve their wishes or their goals in a realistic way. Yeah, so thank you. I just talked that through and, and decided something new. <laughs> you know, that's the beauty of conversation and coaching. That's what, that's right. you know, that's what we do. We, we've met in a business coaching program. So we as coaches need our own coaches. It's, and we know how to ask the right questions. Which is know, happened. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> so you. Abby, if people want to work with you either for communication therapy or in a coaching sense, how, how do they find you? What's that price? process like as a newbie to social media and I know you and I have discussed that but yes I do have a website which is icommunicarenc.com and I have a Instagram page that's icommunicare and I do LinkedIn but that's that's not something I've been really tapping into so really my website and the Instagram page are the best ways to send me a message or ask me a question. Great. 
And where are you located geographically? Great question. I'm located in the Triangle area of North Carolina. So when I see people in person, I see them in my office in the Durham Chapel Hill neighborhood. And I work a lot with people the way we are now, but virtually, which allows me to coach people around the world and get audiences that I may not be able to see if we didn't have this beautiful internet. Mm -hmm. Do you provide virtual speech pathology services? I provide virtual speech pathology services for people in North Carolina because the speech therapist must be certified and licensed in a state where the person that they're treating lives. And so I gave up my, my New York license a couple of years ago, and I have thought about getting one or two others, but for now I'm limiting my speech therapy to North Carolina residents. Great. Thank you. So if you live in North Carolina, especially Abby is a great resource for you. Abby, do you have any parting words or tips you want to leave us with as we close out the interview? I think just probably to, to restate what I have said while we've been speaking is, is that self-care might sound indulgent and it might sound fancy and unnecessary, right? Self-care might mean to some, I'm going to the beach for vacation or I'm getting my hair straightened or I'm going to go buy myself a new jackhammer. I don't know. That's going to be the way I take care of myself, right? But self-care is such an important part of our overall health and wellness and being that we have to look at it as not a selfish thing to include, but as an essential part of who we are. And self-care should mean a lot of different things to a lot of different, can mean a lot of different things to everybody. So it's just really recognize how to fit that into your life while still doing the things that improve somebody else's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know for myself, once I started paying attention to my own health, I became a much better physical therapist and coach. Whereas before I might've been studying more and consuming more information about how to be a good therapist, but I actually wasn't performing well because I was exhausted all the right. time and like not fully present for the people I was with. So it, it took a long time to get me to understand that concept and actually mm -hmm. apply it. But as you said, and it's amazing it's so when important. you see, yeah, what, you, what, what it's amazing what we see with a little extra sleep, yes. how we might feel. <laughs> That's, yes. that's hard. Yeah. <clears throat> or like actually drinking water in the day or something like that. You do yeah. that right now. <laughs> Very good. Well, Abby, thank you so much. I think we've learned a lot through our discussion together. It's going to be so valuable for everyone listening. And I appreciate you sharing your time and your knowledge with us. Thanks so much for talking and having me, Caroline. Of course. And I'll have all of Abby's links in the show notes. So please do connect with her um, and reach out to her for, your, for her services. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and does not create a provider-patient relationship between us. If you have questions about your health, please speak to a qualified health professional. If you would like to learn more about working with me as your qualified health professional, please visit carolinemorris.com. Did you know that gratitude is good for your health? If you found value in this episode, please share it with a friend and leave a rating or review. 
To keep the connection going, subscribe to Elder Health Connection on your favorite podcast player to get immediate access to upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening. With love and gratitude, Caroline.